0: Thanks for joining us this week, especially if you're a visitor or a returning visitor. I do want to mention yet again, we have a lunch immediately after church today that is particularly for you. Even if you didn't plan on sticking around, please plan on staying to eat with us and fellowship with our elders and staff. My name is David. I'm creative arts director and worship leader. Our teaching pastor, Brad, is on vacation. He's visiting his grandkids this week in the mountains, just enjoying time on break with Allison his wife, and so we're glad to give him that break. And so I have the privilege of preaching this morning. And we've been preaching through the book of Hebrews uh, and over the course of this whole year so far. And Brad left off with Hebrews chapter 9. So this morning, we're going to take some time to recap where we've been in Hebrews so far, and then we'll consider some of the ways that corporate worship, what we're doing today, functions in the Christian life. Since This is the first week of the month, Then we'll conclude our time together by coming to the Lord's table. So many of you already know that in my job as as worship leader, uh, that what I do is much more than simply leading songs on Sunday morning. Um, And let me remind you all that uh, what we do with our lives is worship. So thus everything that we do when we come together is corporate worship. So music time is only a small portion of what we do when we gather on the weekends. I mean, in many respects, Pastor Brad is actually the worship leader of Grace Community Church because the proclamation of the word of God is central to why we gather. Uh, And that's that's his gig. (laughs) That's what God has gifted him for and equipped uh, him to do. So what I do in my role as worship leader involves a lot of study, uh, a lot of prayer, and a lot of decisions. For instance, choosing songs. There are thousands of songs that we could be singing on a Sunday morning, and we have time for four or five. Uh, So one of my burdens, as it sometimes feels, is to choose only five songs and exclude thousands of songs for the given Sunday that we're gathering. Because those five songs that we sing, they shape uh, the language that we may use when we're praying uh, for thinking about God, for talking about Jesus with your family and your friends. Those songs are connected to, to memory, and they stir emotion. And hopefully you're getting a kind of a glimpse into my head here. So this is much more than me chilling in my office over here saying, oh, I like this one. It's my jam. Let's do this one. <laughs> So in addition to choosing songs for Sunday morning, I'm tasked with, Guiding our our times of prayer, uh, coordinating those folks, uh, leading our music and AV teams through training and discipleship, uh, coordinating those who greet on Sundays, which is a form of worship, uh, coordinating those who give benediction, uh, choosing what scripture or or reading or prayer uh, we use together. Uh, All of that, all of what I do, is with the goal of helping us remember rightly the gospel. So this morning, I want us to to focus in on that. What what is remembering rightly? And I'll point out some of the ways that corporate worship, what we do, helps us remember the covenant. So covenant is a word we've been using a whole lot lately. Uh, But before we get there, let's consider the book of Hebrews to kind of bring everybody up to speed, especially if you're new with us. Let's look at the context for this word covenant. Uh, So the author of Hebrews, unknown. It's one of these really fun things to try to search out historically. Everybody has their opinion. Some people still say maybe it was Paul. Some people say Apollos. Maybe somebody totally different. Uh, Most likely, this book uh, is a long letter that's functionally a sermon written to a small group of Jewish Christians in Rome who lived during Nero's reign, either just before the persecution really started or possibly right in the middle of it. And if you're unfamiliar with Nero's techniques for persecution, uh, let me just say that he did things that ISIS would approve of. Uh, it's really hard to get our heads around uh, persecution, even seeing what ISIS is capable of, capable of because we live here in a, in a so-called Christian nation. And certainly this area of the state is Christian, right? I mean, no one who lives in Harnett or Wake County has ever been beheaded for their allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Now, if that were happening, or if there were protesters out at the corner of 210 at Harnett Central that were holding signs and yelling that Christians are to blame for the economic crisis or for social instability or for that awful intolerance, then maybe we could start to get a sense of what the Roman Christians were feeling and what the writer of this letter wants to address. Because the writer of Hebrews wants his hearers to remain firm in the Lord, to stand by their profession of faith, to hold fast to their hope. The hope we just celebrated last week at Easter. Jesus is alive. He is guarantor of our resurrection. Jesus is not dead. So our inevitable death is only one part of the life that we have coming. Because of Jesus, actual, literal, physical, bodily resurrection. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, even when there is death at your doorstep, through old age or sickness or persecution, hold fast to your certain hope. So the book of Hebrews then walks us through all the ways that Jesus is our hope. Chapters 1 through 7 make a key point of showing how Jesus is better than angels, than Moses, and better than Melchizedek. Now, if those things sound strange to you, uh, please take time to read through Hebrews 1 through 7 again this week, if you have the time. uh, To see all these ways that the writer of Hebrews is seeking to help his readers remember rightly what God has done, what he is doing, and what he promises to do. Pastor Brad, most recently, just before Palm Sunday, preached on Hebrews 8 and 9. And in those two chapters, we encounter the ideas of covenant and the blood of Jesus. In Hebrews 8, the pivotal part of the chapter is actually a quotation from the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament. The author of Hebrews and ultimately the author of Scripture, God, is helping us remember rightly by giving us one of the many places that Scripture helps us interpret Scripture So Jeremiah prophesied about what Jesus would enact. And here we see these words describing Jesus' work. So this text is from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. "'For he finds fault with them when he says, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will establish a new covenant "'with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. "'Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers "'on the day when I took them by the hand "'to bring them out of the land of Egypt, "'for they did not continue in my covenant.'" So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts that I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one as his neighbor and each one as his brother saying, you know the Lord and they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. So now remember, when Jeremiah prophesied this, uh, he's one of these prophets that didn't get much return in his timeline on investment. So he prophesied this, but it hadn't happened yet. This was not the case. He's describing a covenant that is coming. But for us, when we read this, this is our reality In Christ, the creator of the universe, the most powerful and perfect triune being has said, I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will remember their sins no more. God in Christ does not hold your sins against you anymore. If that doesn't make you rejoice a little bit, uh, then you're not being honest with yourself. This reality is only real in the covenant that Jesus established, however. So if you're unfamiliar with how this word covenant works in Scripture, uh, let's consider uh, some pictures of a covenant. We saw one picture of a covenant uh, just last week uh, when several new members made a covenant with Grace Community Church. Because membership in a local church is a biblical principle that serves many important functions in our lives. So the folks who stood before us just last week, they publicly covenanted to love us, to live with us, and to serve us. And then we as a congregation, uh, we covenant to love them, to live with them and serve them. And the elders covenant with members, vowing to love them, disciple them, pray for them, and walk with them, just as those members covenant to respect, love, and pray for the elders. This covenant is a promise made before God to fulfill certain responsibilities and then enjoy certain privileges without expectation of reciprocation. Okay, for instance, as a member, uh, I have covenanted to give my time and my resources and, and for the work of the church and the community. However, if I were to be involved in an accident and were hospitalized and I was in serious condition, the elders are not going to check to make sure I've held up my end of the covenant before they agree to come pray with me and sit with me. This covenant is not a contract, but rather it's a publicly acknowledged pledge of love. So uh, the Tanas family recently renewed their vows for their anniversary a few weeks ago. Marriage and renewal of vows is a covenant enactment. There are responsibilities and privileges of the marriage covenant. We make the covenant promises before God and before our families, and we make vows that we expect to be reciprocated, but they don't have to be. I have vowed to love my wife, whether she cooks me dinner or not. The covenant works best if we both love each other as we vowed, but the covenant is still in effect even when we falter. So the blessing of renewing vows is it's a way to remember rightly what was promised and to celebrate anew God's faithfulness as a couple vows to continue in the covenant of love. It's a beautiful picture. And thank God that it's not a contract. Here's what I mean by that distinction. I have not made a covenant with AT&T. If I cease paying my cell phone bill, they're under no responsibility to continue providing service. I have to earn enough money to pay my bill in order for the contract to remain in force. And if I fail to hold up my end, the other party can immediately cease providing whatever was agreed upon. This is not a covenant. John Whitley, a theologian, mentions, the relationship that God welcomes us into is not a contractual relationship of obligations, but a promise-based or covenantal relationship Of self giving love. So, the law of God, as beautiful as it is, reminds us that we are broken and foolish and ultimately not good enough to keep paying our cell phone bill. I mean, not good enough to continue living holy lives. So, the law, it was the stipulations of the first covenant that Jeremiah refers to by implication in his prophecy that a time is coming when God will establish a new covenant. But in the meantime, God used the covenant with Moses, with its law, to prepare for himself a people who would proclaim his glory to the nations. So Pastor Brad pointed out that a covenant is legal and relational. So think about our other pictures so far. A marriage is both legal and relational, hopefully. Uh, church membership is not legal in the same way, but it's still an organizationally recognized practice and relational practice. All of the biblical covenants that God establishes are legal and relational. The Abrahamic covenant, now, be sure you're circumcised, that's the legal part, and I will be your God. The Mosaic covenant, of course, God delivers the law through Moses with very specific legal requirements, and we've seen this through the course of Hebrews, but God says, I've heard the cries of my people, says the Lord. And God reveals his name, his covenant name, Yahweh, That's it's only shared with the covenant people in relationship. So the reason that the writer of Hebrews is referring to all these things by using the word covenant, it's in part to remind the hearers and readers that all legal requirements are met in Jesus Every last bit of the law of Moses, Jesus kept it all perfectly. And these two chapters, 8 and 9, are reminders of how exactly Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial requirements of the law. I mean, it's all satisfied by Jesus. And now, because those legal requirements are met, we can enjoy the privileges of the covenant with unmediated relationship with God as a father. So the Jewish folks who were keeping the law of the Mosaic Covenant, they did not necessarily write songs about God as their father. They didn't dare think of him in such personal terms. He was their loving, gracious, sovereign king of the universe, but they could only approach him through the high priest, through the blood of a sacrifice. (coughs) Excuse me, they were his people, but not yet his children. But because of Jesus, a relationship with God is actually possible. We have been adopted into his family because Jesus has fulfilled the law. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the sons and daughters of God. So J.I. Packer, in his book Knowing God, suggests that the concept of adoption is one of the most central doctrines for the life of a Christian. We have to understand our relationship with God in this way, or we only know about God. To know God is to know him as Father. Now I'll return to those ideas in just a few moments. So we are most recently in Hebrews 9, uh, which follows up on this discussion of covenant with the specific power of Jesus' blood. So let's see verses 11 uh, through 15, and then ultimately verse 22, and notice how these ideas are tied together. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus has died for you that you might receive the eternal inheritance of God. This is mind-blowing stuff that we need not gloss over. Like, let this hit you. So, Pastor Brad reminded us of several important things from Hebrews 9 that are foundational to remember as we move forward. So, first of all, the fact that fresh blood of goats and calves had to be shed every year indicated that the sacrificial system was ultimately not completely effective. The cleansing was more of an outward cleansing than a full forgiveness of sins, right? And we see that in these verses. We can recognize that and the lingering effects of this system in our own lives because we think there are regular practices that must continually be done for God to accept us, right? We got to get our good works to outweigh the bad, right? Got to get karma on our side, right? First of all, (laughs) good luck trying to do a bunch of good things to earn heaven because it's exhausting and it's depressing. Second of all, Bono has it right. Grace moves outside of karma, The beautiful symphony of the grace of God makes karma sound like a broken record. Karma would have me dead many times over, but God's grace has adopted me as his son and given me access to everything he has in Jesus. All that to say, the sacrificial system that God established was pointing forward to the Messiah the whole time. We were reminded of this during the Passover meal this week. Uh, For those of you who didn't make it, man, you missed out. Uh, Let me take a moment to say how awesome Zaev did with the presentation of the Haggadah, the the scripture and the the process of the Seder. Uh, He was a tremendous blessing to us. And he has a very potent ministry to Hebrew-speaking people in Israel and around the world through his work in translating the New Testament or the Second Testament into Hebrew. Uh, so there are actually some info cards on Zayev's ministry that are in the welcome room. So if you didn't grab one on Wednesday or you'd like to know more about his ministry, please take a moment to grab one. Uh, because Zayev, he helped us see all of the ways that the Passover Seder prepares the way for recognizing the Messiah of Israel. And it's really mind-blowing. Like it's literally every single thing that he picked up off the table points at Jesus. And this Messiah He's provided what we needed, both the Jews and everyone else, the Gentiles, in order to have an eternal inheritance. We are redeemed. So chapter 9 also builds on uh, this picture of the tabernacle. I don't know if you recall from when Brad preached it or if you're looking at it now uh, in your Bibles. um, God's attention to detail in the tabernacle is amazing. In the same way that the Passover Seder all the detail, because the author of Hebrews is telling us that the tabernacle pointed to God's desire for intimacy with us, but it also pointed to our sin as a barrier to intimacy. But in Christ, the barriers are broken down. So as we celebrated Easter, the veil of the temple has literally been torn, and there is now no spiritual barrier if we come through Jesus. I mean, the author of Hebrews is very clear. (laughs) Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So thanks be to God that just as he provided a sacrificial ram for Abraham so that Isaac might live, just as he provided the blood of a lamb as a sign for the angel of death to pass over in Egypt, God, our Father, has provided the perfect spotless lamb the law keeper, so that we might live as his children, so that death would indeed pass over us, so that the fullness of sins would be forgiven. Let's be honest with ourselves for just a moment. How often do you think in terms of blood? Do you wake up on most Thursday mornings, let's say, and start your day remembering Jesus died in my place? And he is alive as a guarantee of my inheritance with God. I am bathed in his blood. Let's get the coffee going. I mean, if you're a bit squeamish talking about blood this much, <laughs> you're not alone. I, I can't look when they prick my finger. I mean, first time my, son's Ju- my son Judah's finger was, was pricked, <laughs> I'm pretty sure the waiting room thought that it had been severed and it was <laughs> blood everywhere and it was good times. Uh, so... Don't let this talk of blood in the scriptures, though, discourage you. Remember what the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage us. So when Jesus in John 6, he used the picture of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And there were people who were following him who just gave up trying to understand that, and they walked away. As Brad has reminded us, the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't walk away from following Jesus. Even when the teaching is hard. He alone has the words of life. So really, where else are we going to go? But again, I mean, how often do we think in terms of blood or covenant or Jesus keeping the law? For most of us, even those of us who have been believers for a long time, we, we still have to struggle to remember rightly each day. There's so many things to think about every day between work and family and food and commuting and meetings and cleaning and prepping for the next day. We don't always consciously think about the covenant that we're in. And God, our creator, he knows this about us. From the very beginning of his covenant activity with his people, God put in place ways to help his people remember rightly through covenant renewal ceremonies. So, If you think about it, the Israelites, they were all about some feasting. They were given specific days to feast in specific ways to help them remember rightly. Isaiah made this really vividly clear to us regarding the Passover and the Feast of Firstfruits when Jesus was resurrected. So in a way, we too have feasts to help us remember uh, with Thanksgiving, Christmas, Mother's Day, Memorial Day and other Hallmark-controlled holidays in the U.S. Uh, These are days that we're supposed to be remembering rightly, right? What has gone before us uh, and having lots of food. uh, But the celebrations in the Old Testament, they were infused with the Psalms, which are amazing songs of remembrance. And there were recitations and readings like, again, we experienced in the Passover Seder this week. And that's because Passover is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a way to remember rightly what God has done and to celebrate what he's promised to do. He delivered his people from slavery. And in Jesus, he has delivered us from slavery to sin. The writer of Hebrews is also alluding to, in these particular chapters, alluding to Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement. And that, that's, that's a big one, <laughs> It's covenant renewal in all the obvious ways because it's the big sacrifice for all the people of God made in the presence of God, that is, until Jesus. Uh, There were specific things that the priest had to do to prepare uh, that the people of God would do in corporate worship in the tabernacle or temple, depending on when we're looking at it. And this whole ceremony served to help the people remember rightly what God has done and what God has promised to do. And what we're doing today and every Sunday that we gather, maybe our corporate worship is a kind of covenant renewal ceremony. Dan Block, who's an Old Testament scholar, he writes in his book on biblical worship called For the Glory of God. He says, By grace, the creator of the universe and redeemer of Israel invites us to covenant relationship. But this covenant is fundamentally monergistic or instituted by one party. God selects the covenant partner. God establishes the terms, and God determines the consequences of the vassal's response. So true worship lets God be God on his terms, and we submit to him as Lord with reverent and trusting awe. So God selects the covenant partner, establishes the terms, and determines the consequences of how we respond to him. So true worship lets God be God on his terms. And we submit to him as Lord with reverent and trusting awe. So God has called us out as his people. He has given us his word. And in his word, we find ample evidence of how to respond to God. It's not a mystery of how to worship him. That's why Bloch suggests that true worship lets God be God on his terms as opposed to our terms. True worship must never be directed you know, chiefly by our preferences, our desires, or even our comfort. True worship in all of life and in our gatherings should remind us of the new covenant in Jesus, which draws us to trust him with awe at his power and his love. There are many elements of the Old Testament covenant ceremony, as Pastor Brad reminded us of these covenant ceremonies addressed here in Hebrews. And we saw the role of sacrifice, The role of a meal, uh, the physical actions of walking, of witnessing. The Abrahamic covenant included the sacrifice of those animals and the pledge of God to make Abraham a great nation. The Mosaic covenant included the written law and the sprinkling of blood on the people. The new covenant in Jesus' blood. We'll remember that as we conclude this morning. So I would argue that corporate worship is a covenant renewal ceremony. And when I say that, I'm using the metaphor carefully because whenever you use a metaphor in theology, it's important to remember that, A, all metaphor or analogy breaks down at some point. And B, the metaphor should only have ministerial authority, not magisterial authority. What I mean by that is the Bible is the source for theology. It is the magisterial source. But there are other tools that we can use to help us understand God. And metaphor is a tool that we can use. It has ministerial authority. It serves as a helper. But it's never the final authority for theological truth. Scripture alone has that place. So with that aside, uh, corporate worship is a covenant renewal ceremony in that all of what we do when we gather together is intended to glorify God and help us remember rightly his covenant with us in Jesus. So corporate worship helps us remember rightly because uh, we remember what God has done. And we remember what God is doing, even right now. And we remember what God is going to do. So again, kind of another side note. Uh, when I, if I merely say worship at this point, uh, I mean corporate gathered worship of the church. But when we say worship generally, when we're out and about, we should be referring to the way that we live our lives because all of our life is worship to God or worship of something else. Every choice we make is either aimed at God's glory or aimed at our satisfaction. And that's why God reminds us to seek his kingdom first, because he will satisfy us. We have to trust him. But everything we do, whether we eat or drink or pray or sing or give or laugh, can and should be done for the glory of God. And that's worship. So side note over, uh, corporate worship Gathering on Sundays helps us remember what God has done. Like I mentioned earlier, we don't all necessarily have routines built into our day that help us remember these things day to day. Like we need each other through the course of a week. And we need this time to remember rightly what God has done. Because even though I know in the back of my mind that God is good, nobody all the time, come on. uh, Sometimes I just need someone to tell me that. Like I just need to hear it. I need to be reminded that Jesus spoke tenderly to Mary as she sat at his feet. I need to be reminded that my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. I need to be reminded that Christ is the cornerstone, that the builders rejected, and he's a firm foundation on which to stand. I got to be reminded of that. So the songs that we sing and the word that is preached, the ways that we pray, the ways we encourage one another when we're shaking hands or not shaking hands, I'm not gonna push that on anybody, Uh, when we're greeting each other, these are all ways that we remember rightly what God has done. God has established a covenant with us through the person and work of Jesus and the veil has been torn. We've been adopted as sons and daughters of the King. But we need to be reminded of this. Corporate worship helps us uh, remember what God is doing This is yet another thing that we forget. I mean, not only that God did amazing things, but he is even now doing so much more than we can even ask or imagine. So through the power of the Holy Spirit and the renewing of our minds, God is actively making us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So when we hear the word preached, As we sing, as we pray, and even during announcements, we are being reminded of what God is doing in our midst, fulfilling his covenant promises to us. Corporate worship reminds us what God is going to do. This new covenant in Jesus' blood, it inaugurates his kingdom. But it's not been fully established yet, right? We can see that. He has gone to prepare a place for us. He is coming again for his bride, the church. All the sad things will come untrue. All things will be made new. Creation is going to function like it was meant to, and we will live with him in relationship as he does all this. That's what God is going to do. And the preached word, the songs that we sing, the ways we pray and fellowship, they all remind us of this, or at least they should. The songs that we sing together now, they're just the warm-up. And the family retreats that we have now, like we had a few weeks ago, they're just a taste of the rich fellowship. And the beauties of Jesus and Scripture are just scratching the surface of seeing his beauty face-to-face. To quote John Whitley again, he notes that worship rehearses God's promises to us. And it allows for us to recommit ourselves to this covenantal relationship. So corporate worship now helps us remember the covenant, celebrate what God is doing in keeping the covenant for us, and it's rehearsing for what God has promised to do because of his covenant with us. So corporate gathered worship of the church helps us each as individuals also remember the gospel there's a really similar flow to remembering the gospel rightly. Because when we remember the gospel, we remember who we were, who we are, and who we are becoming. So the apostle Peter, he shares the gospel this way in his letters. He says, remember, some of you were crazy. Some of you were horrible. And some of you were just regular old sinners. But God, and his love for us has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. and We are now a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And we are becoming more like Jesus, as Paul reminds us, by being transformed by the renewal of our minds. Transformed into what? Into Christians, or literally, little Christ's. As we worship Him, we begin to look like Him. Have you ever noticed that sometimes after a while, some married folks begin to resemble each other after a little bit? It's never intentional, I don't think, but after years and years of just loving each other and spending so much time focused on each other, their styles become similar, they maybe buy the same glasses, they certainly start to talk alike, Maybe they even get the same haircut, I don't know. Or maybe maybe you've seen these folks who look like their dogs. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. I'm sure there's some clickbait BuzzFeed article on Facebook right now that like 20 celebrities look like their pets or something like that. But these folks who love their dogs so much that somehow they begin to resemble them a little bit. Theologian G.K. Beale argues this: we resemble what we revere for ruin. Or restoration, We become what we worship, ultimately for our destruction or our salvation. So Beal, he builds a case for this biblically by examining a theology of idolatry. Because throughout the scriptures, whenever the Israelites are worshiping created gods or idols, the, the people are described in terms of that graven image. Uh, the prophets say, you have eyes, but you can't see, ears, but can't hear a mouth that can't speak. So as the people worshiped this image, this created thing, a blind, deaf, mute God, they became spiritually blind, deaf, and mute to the voice of Yahweh, the true God. What we worship is what we are becoming. And if we are remembering rightly the covenant of God with us, and we are worshiping Jesus, and we're becoming more like him. If we forget the covenant, forget who we are, and worship ourselves or something we've created, we'll only become more selfish, more broken, and more lost. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Not just when we gather together for corporate worship, although that's a powerful reminder, but daily daily. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer says in The Cost of Discipleship, he said the only way to walk worthily of our calling is by daily recalling the gospel upon which our whole life depends. For some of us, we remember the gospel daily by listening to music that helps shape our thoughts. So if you're a Christian radio listener, then maybe you recall the Jason Gray song from a couple of years ago called, Remind me who I am. One of the tags in the chorus is, tell me lest I forget who I am to you, that I belong to you. Every believer has said this at some point. That's one of the reasons we gather for corporate worship, to hear God say, you are my son, you are my daughter. I love you. There's power in songs to help us remember it. And those of you who are on the creative arts team, you know how picky I tend to be about songs. For the rest of you, that may be a new revelation. Um, well, let me give you a glimpse into the mind of a theologically trained worship leader. Uh, in, in the process of song choice, I first approach songs theologically, then melodically, how you sing it, then the arrangement. So instrumentation, the genre, you know, who did it, that kind of thing which is actually pretty much backwards to how most people listen to songs. Um, But of course, I'm considering the things that are gonna work for our whole congregation, every age group here, every person here. I'm trying to think of all those things at once. So that means the sound of a song really is the last consideration for me. Uh, The first consideration for corporate worship is, what do the words tell me about God? How do they help me remember who I am, who God is, and, and what is covenant and Jesus has done. So there's a song that a few folks have asked me about. I'm going to put all my cards on the table. Uh, a worship group called House Fires wrote a song that Chris Tomlin re-recorded recently and made a popular called Good, Good Father. Super catchy chorus hook. Simple arrangement. Uh, but remember, those things are actually later on in my process. So, so what does this song tell us about God? How does it align with Scripture? So the verses of the song are not particularly biblical. Uh, they're sentimental and poetic in a way, but I don't want to ruin this for you, but you could actually sing the verses of this song about, uh, about a significant other. Uh, and that's a problem for me. When I, when I weigh it out, compared to, like I said, the thousands of songs available for our church to sing on Sunday morning, where does this one fall? Uh, these verses are not helping its case. Uh, then the bridge of the song is, is a paraphrase from Scripture. You are perfect in all your ways. And this exact line is, is not in the Bible, uh, but the sentiment certainly is. Uh, and it's close to Deuteronomy 32.4, for your work is perfect and all your ways are justice. So that definitely helps it a little bit. Uh, but the chorus of the song, and this is what most people remember and what most people love about it. And, and as much as I want to hate on this part, it actually illustrates one of the important things about corporate worship. This chorus very simply and repetitively states that God is a good father and the singer is loved by him. And for many of us, we need this reminder daily (laughs) that God is a perfectly good father who has never and will never abandon or leave us. We are loved by him as his children and who we are is shaped by that love and our place in adoption. Because we tend to forget this, we need courses like this that help us remember rightly. The hater's gonna hate, right? So if we sing this, it'll be in a different context. I'll probably meddly it with something else. We'll see. Uh, but I implore you, Make choices for your commute, for your daily routine, and for your family that help you remember rightly the gospel daily. When we gather to remember rightly, it's like a covenant renewal ceremony in many ways. Uh, There are several core elements of corporate worship that help us remember rightly. If we were to boil down the four basic movements of the church's gathered worship throughout the ages, you'd end up with this, gathering, word, table, sending. So for a covenant renewal ceremony, you would gather together officially. Someone would announce what is happening and the intentions for the gathering. Then there would be a reading of the covenant, reiterating what those gathered should already know, but refreshing the gathered folks with the new telling of the covenant promises and obligations. Then they would ratify the covenant at a meal together. There'd be a feast of sorts. Because breaking bread together has historically been a sign of fellowship, peace, and honor. And afterward, those gathered to renew the covenant would be sent out with a blessing, encouraged to keep the covenant on their minds and live in light of it. So corporate worship is like a covenant renewal ceremony. It's also like a meal at grandmama's on Thanksgiving. Everyone gathers over the course of an hour or so, milling about, getting hugged and pinched, and they're all gathering intentionally to celebrate the holiday. Then the host usually takes a moment to publicly thank everyone for coming. and Maybe you take time to express your thanks in some way. Or the family celebrates in word the goodness that God has accomplished over the past year, showing his faithfulness in so many ways. And after that word is shared, then you go to the table, either the adult table or the kid's table, which my wife still sits at the kid's table when we get with her family. She's waiting for the day when she can finally sit with the adults. And then, and then everyone leaves, right? Everyone leaves, and usually with a hug of blessing from grandpa or grandma. And you're sent out to be a Calvert or a Stevenson or a Tally or a Colbrith in the world. So we gather together on Sunday because Jesus is alive. He was raised on Sunday. So we intentionally mark out this day to remember him. We gather together and get some coffee with a lid and greet those who are gathering with us. And we sing together to aim our affections at the only one who is worthy, Jesus. Then we celebrate the word of God through the songs, through the reading of scripture, through the language of our prayers, and certainly through the proclamation of the gospel from the scripture in the sermon. And then once a month, in our context, we then come to the table together to remember that Jesus ratified at his death fellowship with each other and with God. We don't have a table large enough for everybody to come sit, so we take our turn responding to God's invitation by coming forward. And then every Sunday as we gather a congregation, we then receive a blessing from one of our elders or deacons as they give a benediction, a sending prayer. Blessing us as we go, encouraging us to remember who we are as we scatter until we gather again. As we come to the table together in just a few moments, please consider all the ways the Lord's Supper helps us remember rightly. We remember what Jesus did, He died the death that we deserve. We remember what Jesus is doing, He is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, leading us and singing the Father's praise. We remember what Jesus is going to do. There's a banquet coming that will celebrate Jesus' return and our place as the church, his bride. His broken body reminds us of our healing and our participation in the church and the body of Christ. His blood reminds us of our cleansing and our need to be connected to the vine in order to have life and bear fruit. So, this time of celebrating at the Lord's table together is personal, but it's not private. As we come forward together, we are reminded that although each of us takes the elements for ourselves, we come with our brothers and sisters. We receive from our brothers what the Lord has given to us. The Lord's Supper is corporate, it nourishes each of us individually, and in that way, it nourishes all of us, the body. So as the elders and deacons come forward uh, to serve the Lord's Supper, let me invite all who confess that Jesus is their Lord and Savior uh, to join us as we come to the table today. If you are not a professing Christian, please do not come forward. We are so glad that you're here. But the Bible makes clear this meal and all that it means is for his body, the the church. After the scripture is read, and I, I pray, uh, the servers and the music team will first partake and then you will come forward by either uh, by these interior aisles when prompted by ushers on the end of your row. And then you may eat and drink right as you take or you can take it back to your seat. Uh, but you'll return by the center aisle or by the outside aisles. So please go to that station that's right in front of your section, again, at the direction of the ushers. For those who are unable to come forward because of health issues, please raise your hand and when, we, when your row goes forward, Uh, there are some servers at the back who will bring the elements to you. In 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul reminds us, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Helps us to remember rightly. And receive this prayer from the Valley of Vision. God of all good, I bless thee for the means of grace. Teach me to see in them thy loving purposes and the joy and strength of my soul. You've prepared for me a feast, and though I am unworthy to sit down as guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, Enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours, presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation, to satisfy divine justice. Oh, may I rightly grasp the breadth and length of this design. Draw near, obey, extend the hand, take the bread, receive the cup, eat and drink, testify before all men that I do for myself gladly in faith, reverence and love receive my Lord to be my life, strength, nourishment, joy and delight. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, and glory. As the outward elements nourish my body, so may thy indwelling spirit invigorate my soul until that day when I hunger and thirst no more and sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast. And remain standing for the benediction. We go to our benediction in the book of Jude, the brother of Jesus. And allow this verse, or these verses, to wash over you as you are presented before the Holy Father. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, through the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. And all God's people said, Amen.